Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val, on faculty with the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director for the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, how are you doing today? Jack, I'm doing very well, thanks. Glad to be back with you, talking about these important things. Indeed. I have, I have a, a question for you. I have a riddle for you. Oh. <laughs> is, it, a, it, is it dark? It, no, well, no. <laughs> oh, we could, turn out the, we could turn out the lights. <laughs> oh, like a riddle in the dark? Basically. Uh, no, let's, what's, what's just and kind and sympathetic and cares for people and is responsible for probably a hundred million deaths in the 20th century. <laughs> mm. uh, I don't know, Hodges. While, while you're thinking of that, what would make the second largest oil company, oil exporting country uh, in the Western Hemisphere suddenly, over, basically overnight, uh, turn the people in their country into eating cats? I feel like you're leading me somewhere. Just, I don't. I feel like there's a. You haven't. I feel this is guess the professor's mind. Is what it's, like. it's socialism. Mm. It's socialism. People love nowadays to talk about socialism, and I want to know. Uh, you are a millennial. You <laughs> have to speak for the. <laughs> you have to answer for these millennials. Oh no! Why? Please. <laughs> no, please. No, I'm being silly. Um, but why is it that the, but this socialism that seems to have caused so much trouble in so many places in the history of the world, still such a uh, provocative and um, inspiring concept for uh, people in our country today? I think, I don't know, I think I can speak for the psychology of millennials on this one, actually, though if there are millennials out there who disagree with me, then, well, too bad. Um, <laughs> you're wrong and you're worse than Hitler. Um, so I think it's two things. Uh, personally, I think it's two things. I think, one, um, they're frustrated with free market capitalism for various sundry reasons, some of them like completely illegitimate, you know. I got my what does what Ben Shapiro put it? I got my you know degree in lesbian dance theory, and now I nah. can't get a, now I can't get a job. It must be the capitalist system's fault. Uh, but maybe some concerns that are legitimate, you know, like sort of about a it offers a what's what's the great life it offers you? Well, an ever increasing acclimation to material goods. Hmm. Oh, that's what'll satisfy your soul, type thing, right? So there's a there's a for various and sundry. Illegitimate and legitimate reasons they're frustrated with capitalism, free market capitalism, and that's one reason. That that's one reason, and the second reason, which is connected to it, is nobody is really articulating an alternative other than Marxism. Mm -hmm. Like the mm -hmm. Marxist in their various versions, whether you're talking about classical Marxism, whether you're talking about Gramsci and Marxism, whether you're talking about Frankfurtian or Althusserian or you know. Uh, Leninism, like you know, sure. Slavoj Zizek does, or whatever Terry Eagleton believes. I think it's just a curmudgeonly old classic Marxist. Whatever, or, or it's kissing cousins like socialism, communism, whatever it is, whatever version you see it is, Marxism is the only one seeming to offer an alternative to the capitalist system, so to speak. So there's a dichotomy. It's it's a zero sum dichotomy. It's either this or that, and mm -hmm. a lot of millennials are saying, well, this is frustrating and seems inadequate. What are my other alternatives? Oh, only this? Well, I guess I'll go with this then. Mm -hmm. And I think that's I think that's I think that's part of it. And connected to it is that there really are probably some legitimate beefs, so to speak, to have with the free market capitalist system because it's not gospel. 
Right. Right. It's not right. the third. It's not the same thing as right. Christianity. It's not the third tablet of the Ten Commandments. So there's probably some legitimate critiques, which maybe Marxism is rightly pointing out, though incorrectly diagnosing and definitely incorrectly providing solutions for. So there's also that. So I think I think it's that. I think that they're frustrated for various legitimate and illegitimate reasons with free market capitalism, and the only alternative out there is some brand of Marxism. Like nobody's really, or if people are voicing a third way, mm-hmm. it's not getting a lot of press. No, indeed, it's not. It's not. Uh, right. Well, I think you're. I think you're onto something there. It'd be fun to explore what we think people's critique of capitalism is. Sure. Um, and see, well. I think there's some serious problems with the way even that we critique things, not only what we find wrong with things, but the way we approach critique. So let's let's dive in there. Um, you, mm-hmm. You've got, well, the two ways to go. There's the there's a sort of economic uh, socialism, uh, capitalism debate, uh, and then there's applications of a kind of Marxism in all sorts of other areas of life. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually I'd like to try and dig into those. Yes. Um, so which would you rather start with? Oh, gosh. I don't know. The, the, to me, I, I say I don't know for two reasons. Maybe three reasons. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to count them. I'm just don't gonna, count the reasons. I was say, one hesitation is I'm not an economist nor schooled in economics, and so I always feel like a, you know I'm an unarmed man when it comes to that sure. fight. Sure. So I feel like I'm not sure... Right. I would offer That's, a modicum of intelligence, but it would be uneducated intelligence, which can be extremely dangerous. Yeah, right. Uh, right. But, the, but at the same time, I'm like, the two to me seem, they're connected somehow. This is something that, like, we all should recognize, and part of one of the parts of why Marxism gets such traction with people is because at some point, especially the Gramscian variety of Marxism recognize this, is that economics and culture at the very least, touch each other. Like you can't, they're not, they're not water, sh- you know, they're not like watertight containers separate from each other. There's right. something to it. That if, if Mar- a Marxist worth their salt today would say, if Marxism has spread, you know, analyzing other things other than just economics, it's because capitalism is in other things other than just economics. So that, mm. that, that, that's, that's like their argument, that it's to be spread, that it's a cultural thing and not just an economic thing. Mm-hmm. So the cultural thing is more my milieu, but I don't feel like we can leave the economic part out. Well, let's, let's go this way. Um, <clears throat> one of the aspects of Marxism that I find so difficult uh, mm-hmm. is, um, and, and, and that I frankly oppose, uh, is this notion of dividing people into groups and then pitting those groups against each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Marxist idea, even without having to dig into the details of economics, the, the basics of a Marxist economic system is that the middle class is oppressing the lower class, right? Mm-hmm. So what you do is you, instead of dealing with individual people's sin, you deal with the, the sin of a class of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> then then you you put enmity between those two groups of people and sit back and watch the fireworks because it, the, the encouragement is for the, for the lower class uh, of people to somehow rise up, right? That was Marx's, Marx's famous line, uh, uh, workers of the world unite and you take back, take back your, the power of the, of the world. Right. Well, um, in the same way, on the cultural level, I think we see uh, people being turned into groups and then pitted against each other too. So mm. you have blacks against whites, men against women, rich against poor certainly, uh, but but also, you know, those who favor 
uh, uh, traditional marriage versus those who favor homosexual marriage, um, uh, the, the debates about transgender split people in half. Mm -hmm. um, are you for immigration? Are you against immigration? And those two people have to duke it out with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, it's not just um, a debate where two sides of, of an issue are coming together to discuss the elements of it, to get closer to the truth. It's that each side has been told you, the other side is evil, uh -huh. and you have to oppose them with everything you've got, see? Yeah. And so we get into these squabbles, into these more than squabbles, nuclear war almost, I say figuratively, you know, intense war uh, between uh, people who live next door to each other. Yeah. There is some kind of, in the culture, the culture wars, as they get called, increasingly become more and more a zero-sum game. Right. Right, right. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out that both sides are told that the other side is their mortal enemy. That's right. Because these things are like, see, especially these days, which I don't think it's current to these days, I just think that it's more obvious these days to people that this both sides feed into it. It's like, well, everybody wants, to, it seems like everybody wants to identify themselves with some kind of group in solidarity Sometimes because they just don't feel like they have no choice. It's mm -hmm. like, like, well, this other, like, there's some people who don't want to think in group categories at all. But if everyone's going to just call me this thing anyway, I guess I'll just lump myself in with them because they're not going to hate me or something like that. Group's not going to hate me. So, and I mean, yeah. As a millennial, maybe I could speak for other millennials out there. I don't know what our audience demographic is. There may be one millennial out there who's like, go, Jack, go. <laughs> but, you know, run, Jack, run. But it, it, I was born into the culture war, if I can put it mm -hmm. that way. You know, I was born in like the mid 80s, which makes me millennial. Daggummit. As Eliza Schlesinger would say, I am an elder. I am an elder millennial. An elder millennial. An elder millennial. I can remember the, the mysteries of the landline, you know. So, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I was born into the middle of it, like, you know, the moral majority and the Christian coalition, Roe v. Wade, the culture, cultural revolutions and stuff. All that happened like 10, 20 years before I was born. So when I was born, there were already sides picked out for me and enemies and alliances and things you're always supposed to support and things you're always supposed to decry. It was it was like a, it was basically like a set ideology, you know, with like the actors already set and here you go, like mm -hmm. you know, ACLU always bad, ADF always good, or something mm -hmm. like that. Sure, which could be you know true if you thought about it, but the point is is that it wasn't a thinking man's game. It was a here's stuff set out for you already. So some of us are born into that, or it's like That's enemies right. are already decided for you. That's right. When you say thinking man's game, that really speaks to me because. I think that the rise of the attractiveness of socialism in our day-to-day -day is partly due to a multi-stage, um, well, cause and effect, let's say. Mm. Um, I, I think that to, to dismiss God from the equation so we don't have him overseeing the whole thing means that we then dismiss the logos which is the the word that actually defines terms for us, right? And it's not surprising that some of the postmodern literary theorists call themselves anti-logocentric. Right. Right. Because they're actually recognized that this is an imposition from the outside. This idea of a of a structure of meaning right. from the outside is somehow uh, offensive to them. Yeah. 
Um, so, so we, if we give up God to begin with, then we give up the idea of, the, of a logocentric universe, basically, mm-hmm. that, that defines for us terms like love or marriage or economics or whatever we're talking about, right. um, that gives a sort of structure to that. So now what do we do? We don't continue to reason. We, we, we tried that in the Enlightenment, and we've come so far from that now that we actually have given up, in a sense, on our rationality, too. We're not, we're not reasoners because, in a sense, we don't have that extra reference point to reason from. So what do we do? We turn to our feelings. What feels right to do? And this, I think, started long before uh, you were born, certainly. In the oh, yeah. 60s, you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, phrase was, if it feels good, do it. Mm. Well, if it feels good, think it, I think, now, <laughs> you know. If it, feels, if it feels right, then it must be right. There's no other system by which to judge the sort of moral or uh, ethical or even rational uh, system of thought. Right. I think in America specifically it gets even weirder and more frustrating because of our basis in individualism and our basis in individual rights. Um, there is a, there is this weird sense of like if it feels good, think it, and it must be right. But for you, right, right, for yeah, you, no, that's right. Like you know, you if you want to think and feel that way and order your life that way, cool. Just don't do it on my property. Yeah, you know, or don't do it. You know, so there. So it's like. It's it's this yes. If you feel that way, then it must be right for you, which is always seems like this very precious thing to do to people. But I always find it insulting because it's basically saying, "Look, I know you feel this way, but it's all garbage." Okay, just understand. Right, right, but hey, I'm right. just going to leave you in your delusion because you're obviously having fun. <laughs> you know that, that that time of attitude. But that but that's there too. Is the sense of like whatever feels good to you, do it. It's wholly wholly subjective. Wholly. Uh, in, individual and atomistic. Exactly, I was going to say kind of a hyper individualistic relativism. Right. So, and it's but it's because I mean, if you believe that there isn't anything out there that actually is completely true for all people at all times, then what more compassionate way could you be than to allow each to just follow his own heart and and you know become that kind of atomistic. Uh, culture made up of of, of individuals right. that really don't have anything to, to relate right. to except their own feelings. Right. The highest good of the Enlightenment, where all this comes from, is emancipation. Right. That's the highest good is uh, is emancipation. Now, maybe you know the original Enlightenment personages, you know, qualified emancipation. Maybe they still had some old world notion of well, you're not really emancipated unless you're moral or something like that. But still, emancipation was given the higher ground in some way, and eventually, emancipation dissolves everything, including right, like, right. by itself. You know, emancipation in the void, you know, dissolves all bonds, including moral bonds, and eventually ends. It, in that it does actually. It does. I, I, the first, I think, it's a more gradual thing than just pure, pure autonomous emancipation that the Enlightenment wanted, because you know what they first did was emancipate themselves from from uh, miracles. So the ex, the extra spiritual, or the spiritual, or the extra physical, uh, was doubted. Mm-hmm. Well, you can if you if you uh, 
if you've been raised properly, you still have a whole lot of moral fiber going on inside of you. You know, I don't cheat at cards and I don't, uh, yeah. you know, I don't uh, 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 abuse women or something. I don't beat up women. Well, <clears throat> there are certain things that's, that, that stayed for a few generations, you know, in, their, in the fabric of, the moral, of the, their, their moral hearts uh, because they are the residuals from the pre-modern world. But what left right off the bat was this idea that uh, anything that was extra physical couldn't be trusted. And I think with that, by the way, is a whole new subject, a different subject altogether. I think with that went beauty. Mm-hmm. So the concept of beauty was put on the subjective side. Right. But then eventually every imposition of some kind of, of rational, reasonable, orderly, you know, from on high kind of attitude becomes oppressive. And so, so you're, what you're saying is exactly right. That is the desire for a kind of autonomy from any uh, restriction, any kind of uh, thing that stands in the way of me and my uh, heart getting what it wants has got to go, has got to go. Right. So eventually it becomes the, the, uh, a kind of emancipation mindset that says any, uh, you know, any, any residual Christianity has got to go, any residual uh, moral structure has got to go. But then they have to turn to the government. Because you can't live in the anarchy that ensues, right. right? So that's why I think we're starting to look at a bunch of people who are, uh, uh, are, are motivated mainly by that kind of hyper-individuality and, uh, and have given up any kind of overarching meta-narrative that's going to guide them. Then, because they can't reason, they, they rely on their feelings, and then because they're relying on their feelings, they, they feel injustices in the world, because there are such things. Mm-hmm. If we've, we've thrown out the, <laughs> the system that would teach us what justice looks like, right. but we still live in a world that's very unjust. Right. So we're stuck with, uh, with that. So then the question is, how can we, within the, the framework of our own now modern, postmodern kind of mindset, how can we explain or even address uh, the moral problems we've got? Yeah, and the situation you're describing catches the, the complication, the complicated oh, situation that we're in. Right? I've brought this up before, and I get more convinced of it the more I think of it. The Enlightenment... But I'm going to put it in a little bit different terms. The Enlightenment, you could say, is boil, boils down, when it comes to its final analysis, boils down to basically a rationalist, materialist view of the world. Right. Right? It's like there, it, it eventually, maybe it held some vestiges of an immateriality or something like that, but eventually it's like there's only the material world and our reason is sufficient enough to figure it out. Okay, like that, 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 and, our, and by the way, reason only means merely objective logical analysis. It doesn't include any other factors like imagination or faith or common sense or intuition. Right. Or, you know, anything that was considered also rational prior to the Enlightenment. It didn't right. include any of that stuff. Right. Well, that rationalist materialism, that rationalist materialist worldview produces Marxism, but it also produces capitalism. Like this, mm-hmm. this, it produces. But I've said this before that I, I think I've, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but I've said that Marxism and capitalism is a very, very vicious squabble. But it's an in-house squabble mm-hmm. because both, within the within the materialist world, right within that materialist framework, because mm-hmm. capital, capitalism, and Marxism, in and of themselves, both see 
both hold as a presupposition that there is only materiality. And the good is the right organization of materiality. Mm-hmm. They just differ on how you organize it. Like, how are you supposed to organize it? Is it by market forces or is it by government forces? And in what way do you do market and government forces? Is it like a completely, totally anarcho-capitalist-like style of, like, markets where there isn't even a government? There's just, like, businesses decide all transactions and stuff like that? Or, you know, and then what version of, like, you know, government thing? Are you going to do kind of a soft democratic socialism? Are you just going to be hardcore Leninist communism or something like that? But it's, it is this fundamentally kind of same thing. It's coming from the same area. And both of them are about emancipation. Marxism is about emancipation from, you know, what it sees as exploitation by those greedy capitalists. And the free market is about left to its own advice. When I say capitalism, man, I feel like we're already like getting ahead of ourselves. Because when we say capitalism, or when I say capitalism, I'm talking about it devoid of any other moral structure other than itself. Right. 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 I'm talking like, Straight up Ayn Randian objectivism. You know, okay. selfishness is a virtue yeah. type yeah. thing. That, right. That's it. The only thing that matters is your own self-interest, you know, and, you know, damn the torpedoes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Those two things are all about emancipation from things. It's just emancipation from different things for different reasons. And so they both create this cross current with each other where both sides claim to want emancipation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it, if you talk to any, like, on-the-ground free market type today or on the ground socialist type today, they both would claim that they're about emancipation of something. So they're both about freedom, especially if you're about talking to Americans, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it is like, how dare, you know, I want people to be free, says the socialist. I want them to be emancipated from, you know, these big corporations that hike up prices or like, you know, eminent domain things or pollute our water or, you know, Whatever they say, and the other side says, "I want emancipation. I want us to be free from all this government regulation that jacks up prices and you know creates more and more tyranny or something like that." Or I want us to be emancipated, says the socialist, from all the cronyism that happens from corporatism. And the other side says, "I want us to be free from all the cronyism that comes from you know that stuff because government needs to be out of business." Emancipation is considered a good of both sides. Mm-hmm. It's just how do you achieve the emancipation? is where they disagree. And emancipation is usually boiled down to materiality. You know, what to do with your body? Who, who decides what you do with your body? Mm-hmm. Who decides what you do with your stuff? Mm-hmm. Who gets ultimately to decide that? Mm-hmm. Both sides are interested in that. Mm-hmm. And I think as a Christian, it makes the whole debate very, very tentious because well, we're not materialists. Right, exactly. We don't come at it this from the beginning at the beginning from a materialist position. But what I want to I want to push back a little bit and say is there a direct connection between uh, either of those two and a and a theological position? Like for I'll, I'll answer my own question to a degree here and sure, you can sure. tell me what because the really the other half of what we're going to talk about is more important than what I'm about to say. But I think it's understand it's understood that Marxism itself at its root is atheistic. Mm-hmm. So I think Marxism and atheism do indeed go together. There's a kind of assumption about there not being a God, that all the world is material, and that this is the answer for the just um, and idealistic, frankly, um, uh, 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 equalization of distribution of material goods to mm-hmm. all the people. 
people deserve to be treated you know equally and some people can't have everything and the others have nothing we have mm -hmm. to be able to share all that stuff and that seems to speak to the a sense of of material justice in in many people uh, i can understand why it does but my question really is now about the second half is there the same kind of uh, bound relationship between materialism and capitalism. I don't think so. Okay. Actually, I actually, I actually don't. So think maybe that's not as strong a bond as you laid out just a minute ago. Let, yeah. Let me let me put it let me put it this way. I think capitalism initially had no bond between any sort not just materialism but between any sort of larger you know uh -huh. worldview. Worldview. Uh -huh. I think it was right. just a way markets organized themselves. Yeah. Right. Adam right. Smith didn't invent capitalism. He just described it when he talked about the wealth of nations. You know, it was a thing. It was just the way things went as mercantilism gave way to industrialism and all the stuff that exploded out of that and technology allowed us to open up trade routes with more people and stuff like that. He was just describing what was happening. I think what well, is, is it mixed into that one other thing and that is the idea about about uh, uh, private property. Private property. That is that the thing that that the that the result of your work belongs to you. Mm -hmm. The fruit of your labor is yours to do with as you as you see fit. Right. That's so that that was there too. Yeah. I think what I think what happened is that capitalism is just an economic system. It's a way to organize an economy. Mm -hmm. But Marxism came up as a worldview with a complete full-out worldview. Right. I think it and was it, all of a piece. And it critiqued capitalism, and right. it attacked capitalism, and so capitalism capitalists in response, have been positing capitalism as a worldview. Okay, this is where mm -hmm. I get to like the Ayn Randian mm -hmm. type. Okay. Ayn Rand and objectivism is where capitalism becomes a materialist, fully formed or worldview. Well said. Yeah, and, I think that's right. And I think the Marxists of today, which let me let me maybe we'll unpack this later, but the uh, Marxism. I think we're dealing with today is something I call late Marxism, mm -hmm. which is a Marxism that critiques late capitalism, which is post-World War II globalist, corporate, multinational, financial kind of capitalism. That Marxism is specifically dealing with that brand of capitalism because mm -hmm. this is – and I need to do a little more research on this, so take what I say with a tad grain of salt, but I believe this is the insight, so to speak, that Gramsci – I think it was Antonio Gramsci, I think it was – Gramsci can't saw where he said Marx got it wrong. Marx was wrong to think the issue was solely economic. The mm -hmm. issue is also right. cultural. You know, that capitalism, because, and this is why I said in the beginning, it's hard to talk about culture and economics completely separately because your economy can affect your culture. It can affect, like, well, how we organize ourselves or our goods or how we distribute them is somehow attached to your cultural values and mores and can have some side eddies that come back and affect your cultural values sure. and mores. Sure. And so Gramsci noticed that and said, so this is actually a cultural issue, not just an economic one. So therefore, we have to not just, we can't just ask the workers of the world to unite because, you know, they may be like, unite, I'll lose my job, you know, or something like that. Unite, someone who doesn't have a job is a bum, you know, or something, like, or something like that. It's like, okay, so there's a value system that's been created. That's right. And we have to critique that specifically capitalist value system. That's where you get the Frankfurt School. That's where you get, you know, um, you know, people like Derrida and Michel Foucault, I don't think would have called themselves Marxists. I know Foucault would not have called themselves Marxists because Foucault didn't want himself called anything. Uh, at the end of his... <laughs> 
seminal work, the, the order of things, he ends in his usual style. He ends with like some highly pretentious poetic flair. But it ended with him. He said, I, I am a face etched on the sands of the beach that the tide is constantly washing away. You know, you cannot define me. Mm. Right. So wow. I think I think, you know, the most you could probably call him as an anarchist. Okay, even though he would still reject that label, which probably makes him a consistent anarchist. But <laughs> but their ideas, their ideas of like deconstruction or like Foucault's ideas of like, you know, uh, archaeology and genealogy and excavating the apparatus that holds up social discourse and stuff like that. All that gets picked up by Marxists and influenced Marxists, you know, and Louis Althusser uses stuff like it. Frederick Jameson uses stuff like it to critique capitalism as a worldview. You know, not just an economic system, but as a worldview that values self-interest over all else or values profit-making. Okay? I think that's what it is. Now, so, so let me retract a bit earlier things that I said because now I'm thinking this through. I don't think capitalism was a product of materialism, but I think there is a capitalism that has become a worldview that is materialist. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it became it in response to Marxism. You know, said, no, we are, because there are people out there now who I don't know, I don't know if they would have thought, well, maybe there might have been some back in the day, but I know there are definitely some today who feel like market economics is the path to utopia, right? Like some really hardcore libertarians at like the mm-hmm. Foundation for Economic mm-hmm. Education or something like that would be like, if we just let markets run, it will end all wars and all prejudices mm-hmm. because people mm-hmm. have to cooperate with each other and their own self-interest will maintain peace and cooperation and so on and so forth. You know, there's no indication of like the fallenness of people or the potential for that thing to be corrupt. So I think there is a version of capitalism that is just purely an economic system. It's just the way the markets work that even Marxists can't deny. Because I, like, I, br- I brought that up in a class once with a professor who's Marxist. And, you know, I said, like, so even I said, I didn't, and everyone else was kind of agreeing with all the critiques of blah, blah, blah. And I pointed out, even if we somehow, like, purged everything and started all over again, I don't see how markets just won't arise anyway. Mm-hmm. And even the professor had a degree. He's like, well, yeah, so, like, I'm not sufficient to all my needs. So, of course, a market's going to happen, right? So there's a kind of capitalism that's just the way markets work. And then there's a kind of capitalism that is a worldview. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I'm thinking as you speak about this that the flaw in the arguments that others are giving f- for even and against capitalism um, assume that the, 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 ed- the economic system has got to somehow be perfectly able to make a moral society. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see that in spades in socialism. Mm-hmm. And so I can see why it appeals to people because they think we want an economic system that leaves God out of the equation, whether they think it consciously or not, but, but does deal with the moral world. And right. so this, and this would be a way for us to have, in a sense, justice. That's the word that's tossed around. Right. But it seems to me that then the defense of capitalism assumes too much of the Marxist critique uh, and, uh, and the materialist assumptions right. and, and then turns around and says, capitalism, at least the way you were describing libertarian capitalism, libertarians would say, or objectivists like Ayn Rand, would say, uh, this system will accomplish the moral ends that you want it to accomplish. Right. And I'm thinking, 
I don't buy that Marxism is going to accomplish that. All I've got to do is read history to know that. Yeah. I mean, Paul Pot all by himself was enough to dissuade me from thinking that. But I haven't even gotten to Mao or Stalin or Che Guevara or anybody yeah. like that. So uh, the, the the fact that, uh, that the idea that, that socialism, Marxism, would actually uh, offer a kind of moral system that would take the place somehow of a, of a super supernatural uh, logos is absurd. But, but have we turned around and said, then let's demand that of capitalism, and now let's shoot capitalism down because it's not going to accomplish it? Yeah, I think so, because I think that might be why I initially said that capitalism and Marxism are like the fruit of the same tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because I'm talking this side of capitalism, so to speak, where capitalism right, right. is posited as an alternative worldview. There, I think there may be an argument to be made that capitalism had built into it its defenders and its arguers and its people who would put down its principles so that it could be posited as a full worldview. Yeah, yeah. But regardless, speaking this side of everything, yeah, capitalism is its own materialist worldview. And, be, it, and I don't see how else it would have gone because it's a product of the Enlightenment. No, in some way. Now, it was a purely economic product of the Enlightenment, but eventually it's turned into its own other materialist Enlightenment worldview. That human, be- human beings are fundamentally good. Uh-huh. There's no God. I mean, if you want to believe there's a God, fine. You know, but, but ultimately, there's none. There's only materiality and the organization of materiality. And how do we organize it? Well, the free exchange based on our own self-interest because we're fundamentally good. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's... Mm-hmm. Well, maybe so. I, I, I guess I think of capitalism originally as a way to offset the the sinfulness of man. That is, that the system, and I, 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 well, I'll say it, and then I hope I'm not getting too close to your objectivism when I say this, Just say because it. I'm not in favor of that. Sure. But, but uh, I would say that the um, the sinfulness of man requires that two things happen. One, that each person have the power to make uh, uh, decisions about his own material uh, wealth. Um, and, and by the way, material wealth is nothing more than your life because you, it's the work of your hands that produces this material wealth. And so anybody who can control your material wealth is actually controlling you. Right, which is not even, that's not even a Marxist idea. That's a medieval idea. That's a medieval idea. Because you can find that in Dante. Sure, sure. So, so the, to, to think that I can, um, here's, here, let me, let me give you an analogy. Okay. Um, say we are a Christian world and we, uh, we use the telephone lines. Okay. Okay, we we establish a an AT and T or whatever the name of the company is. This and podcast is not uh, not promoted by AT and T. No, no, this AT&T. is not. That's right. They're not our sponsor. <laughs> sponsor, that's right. Um, but uh, let's say there's a company that 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 helps you know get uh, telephone lines up and running, you know, or telephone towers. Think about cell towers or whatever way you want to communicate by way of telephone. Okay, so you have a system of internet network basically of all these these wires or these cell towers that make it possible for us to communicate with each other. Okay. Well, think of think of Christianity in that case as the world view and the the network of phone exchange as the the economy. Mm-hmm. In that case, if we were to suddenly become 
uh, atheists. If we had give, if we give up the notion that there is a logos that that speaks to us and defines terms and lives, gives us framework and so on in our in our daily lives, what would happen to the the uh, the the kind of communication that went on on the phone lines? What would happen is we would be the same. We would be the people that we are. We would. We would. If we're Christians, we speak on the phone lines in moral terms. If we're not Christians, we speak on the phone lines about things that are immoral as well. Right? We might maybe more, maybe not. But what I'd say is, hey, I'm I'm planning to murder my next door neighbor, but I could use the telephone lines to talk to the guy I'm I'm plotting with. You see, in other words, you could do you the same lines actually make it possible for me to do good or evil. Right. So here's the problem I see happening. We have long since given up Christianity, but we still have the phone lines. And now we're blaming the phone lines because immoral traffic is going on. Yeah. See? Yeah. And what I think is it's it's not the phone lines fault. It's the it's the uh, the lack of the logocentric Christianity that gave us fro- uh, moral framework yeah. that that is at fault, and we can't blame the system of phone lines for that that lack. If the if the phone lines are to be are to be blamed, then I can see people start regulating them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. hey, wait a minute, you can't use the phone lines after midnight because that's when the largest majority of immoral discussion goes on, right. see, or whatever. Right. But why blame the system for the the lack of morals? You see, I don't I don't think of capitalism as inherently immoral. I don't think it. I think of it as a system of exchange. Uh, maybe more like what you were talking about that's early capitalism, mm-hmm. not late capitalism, I don't yeah. know. But it's a weird idea for me to think that that system of capitalism that would allow for free exchange and that would actually regulate to a degree the the, uh, the sinfulness of people. If I start doing sinful things in my business, then all my customers go to the other, the other you know, bakery down yeah. the street or whatever. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're, I think you're dead on. And let me explain why I think you're dead on as the elder millennial in the room. I think you're dead on because one of the reasons why I think when it comes to these questions in the past, in like discussions I've heard with you, you're like wiser about this than other people, is because you treat capitalism in that old style where mm-hmm. it's just an economic system. Mm-hmm. It, it, at, that, at that level, it's just a tool. You know, it's like, I mean, it's just a tool. There's an, there's an argument to be made. Maybe in a Heideggerian sense of like whether a tool is morally neutral or not, but there's still, regardless, there's still some level where the tool's goodness and badness depends in some way on how you use it, mm-hmm. on you. Mm-hmm. Like you're That's the right. moral agent. That's right? right. You can use a hammer the wrong way. Wrong way. So there's an older view of capitalism that is it's just an economic tool. If someone said, you know, Capitalism, it, 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 it's it's goods. It's good is not benevolence, and its evil is not malice. You know, there's no in that mm-hmm. it, there, it, it, it itself has no intentions. Right. It's just it's just however it gets used. You know, however it gets used. It's all the benevolence and the malice comes from you, like what, right. how you're using it. a in the, the seeing capitalism in that old school way. You know, a business owner could, you know, use the free markets to become successful, and in their success, they pour all their money into helping people. Mm-hmm. You know, pour all of their, you know, they, they leave a nice little side for themselves so they can live a comfortable life and their children can live a comfortable life, but then there's a huge chunk of their profits they pour back into their business and they pour back into other people, right? And that happens. But that's not because 
That's not because of capitalism. That's because of their moral that's order that they hold. Right. To, right. That's right. And so this is why I say you're dead on right. I think what is happening, if I can organize it again, like I had it in my brain five minutes ago. <laughs> As I study what I'm calling late Marxism, which is this Marxism that's this Gramscian, Frankfurtian, Althusserian, you know, post-structural, whatever. This this mm-hmm. critique of late capitalism, which late capitalism, I guess we could say, is this global, multinational, corporate worldview about capitalism. It's a world order, okay, that, you know, this is the prime good or something like that. Marxis, the late Marxism basically works like this, and this is where its problem comes in. It recognizes that it's not just economics, it's culture, okay? And culture is a place of values, and capitalism as a worldview infuses certain values by what it produces. You know, the movies, the goods, the, the ideas, the things that, the, the ideas that get pressed and the ones that don't get pressed, you know, what schools get encouraged and what don't, where, where you know, uh, what what the ideas corporations lobby for in the government or whatever there, there's a way to control the narrative via the means of production and thus values get created all right and so mm-hmm. if you want to critique capitalism and really start the revolution you have to see through the things that they give to the production that's behind them and expose it for the corrupt greedy thing that it is all right so they're like all right so the the problem is culture and values all right okay but they're still thinking in terms of materialism. So culture and value has, and has no connection whatsoever to transcendence at all. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just materiality, which means it's kind of a weird, it's, a, it's illusion at the end of the day. It's, there are no values. So it, they get stuck in this weird thing. This, is, this was a critique I had of it earlier, back when I was still calling it post-structuralism. This is the critique, my initial critique of post-structuralism, is that it wants to behave ethically on a nihilistic system. Uh-huh. Right, you can't Assist, justify ethics in right. You can't, system. and you can't justify it. Yes, it keeps trying. It keeps using this deconstructive thing to dissolve all values, and then turn around and say, "Okay, now let's posit some values." And I'm like, "You can't do that." Right. He's you like, can't. "You can't watch it." I think what's really going on is that it's not post-structuralism and deconstruction, but it's the fundamental late Marxist thing. It's the same tension. They want to see through and deconstruct all of late capitalist production. But they're doing it in materialist terms, and thus they don't really have a grounds for values. Right. And yet they want to argue on the level of values. All right. And so, but they keep saying, well, the values must be purely somehow related to materiality. Thus, if we create a properly ordered material system, everything will be fine. You know, like the va- we'll have the right values if just the materiality is distributed properly. Right. And that mistake is the exact same mistake that those who treat capitalism as a worldview make. Because that, that's what I'm saying. They're both basically the same thing. They both say, if we can just organize materiality correctly, everything will be fine. Yeah. And it always fails because we're not merely material. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's an immaterial side. It's not just the transcendent, imminent God, but also there's our soul and our mind. This is where, I, once I started to understand this, that the problem really, is, this is I said before the podcast that I had this, when I thought about late Marxism as an idea, suddenly all the stuff clicked together. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, oh, that's why identity politics uh, is so stupid at the end of the day, because it sees, well, there's this material problem and we have to fix it. But by the way, we're all just materiality and just a product of material forces, and therefore we're a product of our groups. And it, all, it tries to fight for justice, 
But why does it always end in reductionism? Mm-hmm. Because it's materialist. Mm-hmm. And thus it doesn't see any transcendent values or any transcendent immaterial part of the human person. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And, and you're you're right in the sense that they they also want to approach all cultural artifacts that way, don't they? They yes. want to they want to look at a book or a painting or a piece of music or whatever, and in a sense see through it, like you said, to the to the means of production beyond it. And yeah, who, who made it? Like you were saying before, right. who made it? And uh, and why did he make it? And and what uh, maybe maybe stand with or opposed to that set right. of things right going on what strikes me is that this seeing through thing is dangerous now of course lewis has talked about if you see through everything then you be it'd be the same thing as being blind right right? because and i think i think cynicism is actually seeing through things it's the assumption that i know why people really did things Mm -hmm. you see i may say on the surface that they're trying to be x but i know they're being y you see so i'm kind of looking through and knowing their their motivations that's i think that's cynicism that's a good definition of cynicism well but here's what's interesting to me it's not just a matter of looking at the object i think we ought to be able to study the object and not simply see through it to the means of production behind but let's say think of the object standing there before you whatever it is as a window, and you're on the east side of the window looking west, okay? And you're looking west into the, the background of it, looking through the window westward into the, the means of production and the question about who made it and what intentions they had and so on. But here's what's interesting. The Christian picture of that same object is, the, is like standing on the west side of the object and looking at it but also through it not to the material world, but to the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. That is, the object has the ability to open our eyes into heaven, yeah. into God, right, into his ways. And so things of this world have this extra dimension to them, like vines and branches that we talk about, the kind of um, metaphorical meaning to various elements, even in the created order, mm-hmm. that help us to see the God beyond uh, them. So seeing through the thing is not inherently wrong. It's a little bit weird that we want to see through it to see the material side. Right. And that's the, see, that's the thing. The catch is the materialism. That mm-hmm. is, at the moment, I believe the slam dunk, irrefutable flaw in the whole system, because if you hold to materialism, if you hold to it, so so look at it this way. Let me let me get let me put on my literary theorist hat okay. for a second. Okay, um, that's a scary hat. I know it is a very scary hat. It has many <laughs> sharp teeth and multiple genders, but but <laughs> let, let me put that hat on for just a second, if I can, if it if it'll let me. Um, one of my professors said the pro, like the, so the, the 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 focus of a literary theorist is what played is a platonic notion of like the problem of representation okay, okay? it goes right. all the way back to like plato's republic you know kick all the poets out of the ideal society because what they do is like several steps too far away from the good you know right. like and the, the like pure speech is closer to the good than like writing down, and then like poetry is even farther removed because it's you know it's embellishment and stuff mm. like that. So there is this problem of representation. How do we know that representation, like what is it and what is it actually doing, and is it doing it well, so on and so forth? That's always the focus. You know, literature is some representation of something. You know, someone's ideas or some worldview or you know life or whatever. Right. all art. Right. Let's say all, all art, all artifacts sure. are like that. Sure. So. What Marxist theory does, when I say Marxist theory, there is a school that's just Marxist theory, 
But when I say Marxist theory, I mean Marxist theory and everything that's been influenced by it, which is pretty much all of academia has been soaked in this stuff. Right, right. Post-structural theory, post-colonial theory, third-wave feminist theory, queer theory, critical race theory, you know, probably trauma and ecological theory, too, the stuff mm-hmm. like that. Whatever. All these other theories are all influenced by the Marxist way of viewing things, which is this. You see the representation, and you see through it to, as we said, the production behind it and who owns that production. That production could be literal production, like, you know, oh, it was made on paper. Well, you know, what does that say ecologically about what was going on? You know, the society at the time, the historical material forces going on that produced that work, what were they? Well, there was like, you know, this attitude towards trees in the forest. And do you see that attitude reflected in the representation? And how does that representation relate to the production you know, behind it? Does, it? does it support it? Is it complicit in it? Does it subvert it? You know, does it, is it in some sort of tension where it kind of is doing both and it doesn't really know where to go? That's kind of how, that's how Marxist theory works. You look through the representation to the production and the ownership of that production and you work on the relate and you analyze the relation between the representation and the production. I'm mm-hmm. sorry for my listeners if I'm sounding abstract, but it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> let me let me let me put it concretely. If we're talking about windows, the Marxist theorist comes up to the piece to the representation, okay, the literature, the whatever. Let's say it's a window and this window has a some sort of colorful decal on it. That makes a nice little image or picture, right, on the window. It's very nice to look at. Well, what the Marxist critic of any stripe, post-colonial, feminist, whatever, wants to do is to take a scraper and scrape off that decal so they can look through the window at the window-making factory outside mm-hmm. and see either the robber baron who runs it you know, the, the, or see the window-maker who made it and is kind of subverting the robber baron, or maybe is agreeing with the robber baron, or maybe is caught in a tension. They don't, they kind of agree and kind of don't, you know. They're a Christian, but they're homosexual. What do they do? Or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, Jane Austen, was she a fan of the patriarchy, or was she subverting it, or was she caught in tension? I don't know, but I'll get tenure, you know, <laughs> talking about it, right? right? It's this idea, it's this idea of seeing through it to get to the production behind it. When you see it that way, that's not that's their critical that's their cultural critical critique is that is seeing through the representations to the means of production. When you see and who owns it, when you see it that way, a bunch of stuff starts making sense. Especially the idea that you keep seeing through things endlessly until you become blind. Why is it that nowadays it's like it used to be that I mean it used to be that like white maleness was the big bad. All right. right, but now oh, it's, it still is. Well, it still is, but now it's like white European male heteronormative cisgendered able-bodied uh, nationalist uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, just keep adding. I see what you mean. Just keep adding the cisgendered. You know, just keep adding all the things. Why? Well, because we keep seeing through multiple. Pro- we used to say that it was you know white men, but then you know uh, black women came along and said, you know what, black men can be oppressive too. Mm-hmm. And then lesbian black women came along and said, you know, straight black women could be oppressive too. And then, you know, Muslim lesbian women of color mm-hmm. came along and said, you know, those non-Muslim lesbians of color can be oppressive. And then <laughs> the foreign right. Muslim lesbian women, because you know, sure. those 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 nativists. What? And then the disabled foreign yeah. Muslim. 
lesbian, lesbian of color. And it yeah. just you just keep seeing through. Right. You keep going. That's what that is. Just keep right. seeing through and right. seeing through. And here's the catch. That way of seeing things is absurd, but it makes perfect sense in a merely material system. Because here's how you and I, as you said, here's how you and I view representation, okay? We're, we're not a seeing through, we're looking at, right? But for a materialist, that makes absolutely, especially a Marxist material, that makes zero sense. That, that, that's to be benighted, okay? The representation is not the real story. There's this material production going on behind. A smart person, an intelligent person, an educated person, a woke person can see through the representation to the production behind. If you're looking at the representation, then you're being fooled. You're being fooled by a plague of fantasies, right? You're being fooled by the simulacrum. You're being, you're being fooled by it. You need to learn how to look through it. But we are not, you and I, we're not looking at in the sense of, like, materialism at all. Right. All right? We're more high gothic in the way that we, the idea of looking at. Because for us, it's not a window with a decal you can scrape off. It's a stained glass window. Where beyond it, there may be the artisans who made the window, but also beyond it is the sun. And the sunlight infuses the window and is part of the window. And it's like, there is the craftsman and how they made it is interesting, but there's also this other thing. Mm -hmm. This other that thing that, that, is pointing to. that it's pointing to and is and infused and, and, and in the work. And experiencing together. And experiencing together. Yeah, it's together. all of a, of a piece. And, and the sunlight the and, the, and the, the stain in the glass uh, work together to accomplish the end. Right, so looking at the, the thing artist. is actually seeing something even greater than the means of production. Right, and that's kind of what I was trying to say a minute ago. That right. is that you you're, you're saying that the Marxist would think through, look through the the object to the means of production behind it. But I'm thinking, and I suppose you can look in a sense. You could look down through the window to the means of material production. You could look up through the window to the sun. You're talking about my my metaphor was the other way around. That is that I go I, I'm on I'm on one side of it, looking through the window at the means of production. But what I need to do is come around the window and and from the perspective of the means of production look through the window to where I was. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see the sun, mm -hmm. or that's where I see God. Right. Because the, the, uh, the, the assumption of the Christian is that the, uh, the artwork actually reflects something of, or reflected, maybe not the best word, um, metaphorically embodies something right. that speaks of this transcendent reality beyond it. If you've given up the transcendent reality, why would you ever ask an artwork to speak of something transcendent? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Right. So now it becomes a means to look through. In a sense, here's the deal. If you take my sort of geographic way of looking at it, that is you come around the window and look through it from the perspective of the, uh, of the, the worker, right. Then, then you can see you can see through it to the God beyond it. If you dismiss the um, the transcendent, then what you do is you come around and take the place of the transcendent yourself. In other words, mm -hmm. when you're looking from the perspective of your Marxist, looking right. through the window to the means of production, you're standing in the place of God. Right. And that's what the, is really at the source of all the problem here. I think we've given up God, but what we do without thinking about it is we put ourselves in the place of God, and then we judge in accordance with our own understanding of what's good and right and true and like that. Right, and that, all that stuff for me has slowly been accounting for why I don't like Marxism as a cultural theory. Right? Uh -huh. and why, why, like, why all my initial revulsions of what I thought was post-structuralism were there. Because I don't want to look through 
the thing. I want to look at it because there's something there. That's right. Something that's more substantial than even the means of production behind it. That's right. I don't like, I, so it's like, I didn't like the sense of looking through because A, it seemed to be like, I, I've said it, I've said it before. I said I feel like Marxist theorists of whatever stripe, whether they're straight up Marxist, whether they're feminist, or whether they're postcolonial, you know, God love them, they just don't seem to be very interested in literature. Uh-huh. They just don't like. Uh-huh. They're like they're like I'm looking. I'm looking at Edmund Spencer, and you know they look at Edmund Spencer, and they're like, well, what does his you know uh, Elizabethan England politics have to say about his relationship with Ireland? You know, and like the what, where's the colonial aspect and that type of thing? And I'm sitting there going, dude, there's dragons, <laughs> and right. the dragon is like evil for these specific reasons. For these reasons, and it's telling us. It's telling us something true about yeah. like existence which yeah. is bigger than the means of production dad gum it you know yeah, like that right. that's where all I, so there's that there's the sense of like they just don't seem interested in stories and right. i'm super interested in the story and what's going on there but the second thing is this bizarre hubris that like i can see through the thing to what's behind it therefore i know better than even it right what it is. and the right. insidious part yes and this is where I think the first part of like seeing through, I, I, I say I disagree with Marxism as a theory and a political thing and an economic thing because it's rationally incoherent and ultimately immoral. All right, the rational incoherent part is that constant materialist seeing through thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's completely missing a whole section of reality, and thus it's always going to be screwed up in its principles. Mm-hmm. But the ultimately immoral part comes with the fact that this way of seeing seeps into the ethical, and now. It's not just looking at representations like literature and art. It's not looking at people, looking at a person and saying, I see through you. That's right. I see, I see your whiteness and your maleness and your cis, and I see behind it the whole of heteronormative xenophobic patriarchy. It's a, and now suddenly that person is, it's dehumanizing. It's right. reductionistic. It, and now why can't you, you know, you know, be Antifa and take a bike lock and smack someone. Say, why not have innocent men fall under the you know excavating of excavating out of like real you know actual sexual perversion and perverse? Why not see innocent men fall? Because I'm not trying to deal with evil individuals. I'm trying to take down this system that's right. behind all these right. people. Right. That's so insidious and immoral and arrogant. It's this utter hubris. You call it cynicism, which is accurate. My word was hubris, which hubris I think captures. Is a great way too. I think it captures the idea of like I am in the place of God. I can see through it all. Right. And right. so to be yeah. cynical, you have to have hubris. You have to think of yourself as God. Right. And decide for yourself what's right. And that's why Marxism supremely frustrates me. And I'll never be a Marxist. Okay, I can't. Yeah. But the other side of the coin that frustrates me is I. I don't know. I don't even know how to put this. I was about to say I don't like or I'm not a fan of. That's not the right word. I have criticisms of capitalism because I've grown up on this side of it where it is this kind of other worldview that demands my loyalty. And I look at it and say, no, like, right. no, like on on one side is the Marxist who wants to take the place of God and see through everything. And which is its own kind of hubris and cynicism. But on the new capitalist side, if I could put it that way, the late capitalist side is an own kind of hubris that, you know, you are in the place of God as well, so just, you know, get all you can, enjoy all you can, as much as you can. It really is like a Nietzschean 
you know, will the power type Even thing. at the expense of other people. Even at the expense right? of other people. So, yeah, I think that's the critique of capitalism people give now because they are they buy the idea of materialism. So material justice is really all that is important. Moral moral right. behavior it has to do with uh, not taking more than your share of the pie kind of attitude. And so if some group, white male, males or heterosexuals or... Republicans or whatever right. are taking too much of their share. Are, are what they're doing is they are uh, they're being they're accusing uh, those people of um, take well now I lost it taking too much uh, of their share of the pie and assuming that their power uh, justifies their use and abuse of other people. Right, right, and so if that's what the problem is with, and they're, they're blaming capitalism for that, hmm. I can understand why they would say, "Let's look for something else." Right. And the only alternative is socialism. Sounds really utopic. Let's do it. Right, I get that, but I, my, my problem is, I don't see how you can blame capitalism for those things. Right, I want to see that connection. Right, well, that's because you're. That's because I like your old school is not the right word but you you understand capitalism as merely an economic system right not as a whole encompassing worldview well i maybe it gets raised to the point of being a whole encompassing worldview because of the fact that we've left god out of the equation yeah that was actually i'm glad you mentioned that because that was actually another point that i thought of earlier and then completely forgot now i remember it good i think the other like the other thing that frustrates me and i say frustrated a lot on this podcast maybe that's my <laughs> i think we ought to rename the podcast jack's frustration jack's frustration <laughs> here's my latest one marxism is stupid all right that's too harsh marxism is extremely flawed and ultimately falls apart right all right i respect the marxist concern and desire to critique something but i think marxism is rationally incoherent and ultimately immoral right Okay. Gotcha. So I don't want that. But when I step out of it, there's this, there's these other people. There are stands. Oh, you're not going to be a Marxist? Great. Welcome to unfettered capitalism. And I'm like, you're coming and totally buy every single thing that we believe and every single check mark we check off. Like, right. you know, and I look right. at it like, no, I have a problem with the self interest principle as a central like. I have a problem with consumerism. Yes. I have, right. a, I have a problem with, with. Uh, well, how did Roger, not Roger screwed, but how did the Paris statement put it? I, I actually have a problem with the totalizing of the market and everything being for sale. Right. Right. I have a problem with ratings determining what news stories get told mm-hmm. or like, uh, you know, uh, donor money, you know, or donor money or subsidization determining what counts as legitimate education or something like that. I, right. I, I have a problem with market forces going everywhere and unfettered and unrestricted. I have a problem with that. Oh, well, you must be a Marxist. No, I hate Marxism. <laughs> oh, well, then you're a capitalist. No, no, no. I, 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 capitalism as an economic system is cool, but there's some problems with it, especially if it starts becoming a culture. Oh, well, then you're a Marxist. I'm like, that's the other frustration is that, and it's like I said at the beginning. There is a false dichotomy. You have two that creates a false zero sum game. You have only two options: either you are a dyed in the wool and Randian capitalist, or you're a dyed in the wool Leninist Marxist, or some variety thereof. Mm-hmm. And there is no space in the middle to look at both and say you're both bonkers in different ways, or something. Mm-hmm. Like, or I agree with you on these points, but disagree. There's no room for any of that actual intelligent nuance or wise nuance. 
And that's another thing that I wish I wish there was a conversation somewhere. I think there is, but I wish it was getting more press or whatever of a conversation of a third way of some kind. Because I know it's out there. I mean, my one of my big heroes is Chesterton. You heard of Chesterton? Um, K.B. Chesterton. Yeah, no, no, no. P.G. 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 Chesterton. No, 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 no. That's K.B. Woodhouse. K.B. Woodhouse. No, I'm sorry. Woodhouse. It's George R.R. Chesterton. J.R.R. Chesterton. C.S. Chesterton. Yeah, I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, Chesterton himself, you know, in his own kind of flourishing way. He was against capitalism and Marxism. He uh-huh. was against both. He saw the one as because he saw the one as big business and the one as big government. And he called it distributivism. Yeah, and he called something called distributivism, which is based right out of Catholic social teaching and uh-huh. stuff like that. Uh-huh. Am I a distributivist? There's some parts of it I like and other parts I don't understand. The point is, is that there was a conversation somewhere about a third way uh-huh. that looks at both of them and says no, mm-hmm. like no, 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 no. You're both. Some of you, some of it, you get right. A lot of it, you get wrong. Here's another way to go. And I feel like if there was just some space to say, hey, there's a possibility of a third way between late capitalism and late Marxism, I think that would help. Because I feel like the two things mutually aggravate each other and push everybody into these camps. I know what you're I know what you're saying, and I appreciate that. I I, but I I can't buy the idea that we are stuck with what you call you're calling late capitalism without the ability to actually redefine capitalism the right way. So it, while I might like the idea of a third way, given the only two that you offered me, the Ayn Randian capitalism as opposed to Marxism, um, and, and it may very well be that distributivism would be a good thing, but I'm always reminded of that, and I really don't know much about it either. I have to read about it myself. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I've always been reminded of something that Bill Buckley said, that he, he said that the problem with socialism is socialism. The problem with capitalism is capitalists. Mm-hmm. And the idea, of course, is that the system of socialism is inherently flawed. You can't make it work. It's not going to work, no matter how you try, no matter how sincere you are in applying it. It eventually leads to bloodshed because you have to take over the means of, of production from people who don't want to give it up. Right. They don't want their private property taken from them by force. So uh, it leads to bloodshed. It almost always does. I've never heard of anybody actually serious about socialism that, uh, that it ha- where it hasn't led to bloodshed. Now, I, that's, uh, people are going to say, what about, the, uh, what about Sweden? What about Denmark? They're not really socialists. No. France, it's not really socialist. They're still owning property. It may be that they are providing certain services that we might agree or disagree about, like education or health care or something like that, uh, in a socialist fashion. But they're not actually living on uh, living as a so- right. socialist and communist they're, sort of they're approach. They're like weird hybrids of free market. That's right. Some. That's right. And uh, so I, I, I don't think they're very good examples. Uh, Especially, but, especially, just a side note, especially the Swedish ones, because I've heard that certain of them are actually rolling back their socialist doctrine because that's correct. it's becoming too much of a burden on their free market society that was originally sustaining it. The, the idea was that the companies that were making so much money were being taxed at such a, la- a rate that they were going out of business. And if they, are, if they are being taxed to death and go out of business, then the social programs that rely on that tax money can't apart. possibly continue, see? Right. So they began to think, well... I read a guy say one time that socialism in the, in the Europe has worked for a country for about 40 years. So about, about a generation, maybe two, you have uh, successful socialism, and then you realize that it's not going to work. Like Margaret Thatcher used to say, 
problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. Right. Um, well, if you can't sustain it, then, of course, the country has to make some changes, and that's just what uh, 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 Sweden has done. From about, I, I did some research on this, but from about 1930 till about 1970, Sweden was more socialist. But by in the 70s, they started cranking back their socialism and giving back mean, the means of production to private uh, industry and private individuals. Uh, and as a result, they haven't gone under. Well, in every other case, socialism it, it itself is impossible. Uh, the, the founding fathers found that out. When the, the, the fellows came over from, from, uh, to Plymouth, from England, uh, they had this compact that they, that they said everybody's going to be uh, owning all the means of production together. We'll pour every, put every, all of our uh, accomplishments, our, our fruit in a, in a storehouse and then divide it up equally among everybody. And within a year or two, they realized some people are not working at all. And other people are working really hard, and they're all getting the same benefit. And the result is that the guys that are working really hard say, I'm not going to bother to work so hard if I can get the same benefit by just loafing around. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the storehouses went down and down, and they nearly starved. So they said, we're going to give everybody a piece of property, the same amount of property, and the, whatever they produce from that property, they get to keep. And suddenly, industry went through the roof, and everybody got along just great. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's the b basics of, of, I think, free market capitalism. Right. Now, when we talk about unfettered capitalism nowadays, I think we're talking about uh, unfettered by moral restraint. Yeah. See? And it's the moral restraint that I want to get back to. It's not, I don't want to admit, uh, embrace capitalism because it will accomplish moral restraint. It won't. Mm -hmm. I don't want to dismiss capitalism because it doesn't give us moral restraint because it never was intended to. Right. It was a system like the phone system to make it possible for people to exchange goods and the, their morals actually dictated the, the moral of the, the morals of the of the of the society. Yeah, I yeah. I think what you're articulating is what I would call a third way. Ah, it remind good. it reminds me of the Paris statement again in that they it, it has its own difficulties and things to get around, but they acknowledge two things: one, that market economics is just gangbusters; like it produces so much wealth, absolutely, and so right. much opportunity all over the world, all over the world, wherever so it's much, tried. So much enterprise; it raises people out of poverty. That's right. It's like it's as an economic system, it's gangbusters, but it's not enough, and it ought That's not right. to be totalized. There ought to be some kind of moral system that. Hedges is in, hedges it in. If it's the cathedral, there needs to be a buttress system of like a moral That's right. system holding it up. That's now, right. exactly what the relation is to that. Whether and this is where this is where the difficulty comes in. And certain people have argued and gotten problems with this, especially in Christian circles. Is exactly how do we incul and we we can't answer this now because I think we tried to talk about it before and it's a really difficult thing. How do you inculcate that moral culture? Because there are some who'd say, well. We ought to vote on legislation as part of the way we inculcate a moral or set of buttresses around the markets. And others would say, no, that's opening the door to massive coercion and the, you know, the, the earmarks of tyranny and stuff like that. that. I think that's where the tension is and where the discussion has to go. But I think a third way involves recognizing that market economics, economics based on private property defined as you get to keep the fruits of your labor. Right. Okay? Right. An economic system based on that 
reinforced by and contextualized in a moral order of some kind is a third way between mm-hmm. sort of a unfettered late capitalism and the constant hubristic materialist seeing throughness of Marxism and late Marxism. That's a third way. Well, I'd like to think that's possible. Um, it, it, it's going to take a spiritual renewal of our people. Yeah, see, that's the, that's the it's problem. It's not just an economic renewal. It's a spiritual renewal. See, that's the problem. Because our society has become so secularized, and I think that secularization has been a, a part of that multiple things, and an into that multiple thing is that kind of back and forth between market economics and Marxist critique and emancipation and the, you know, all those things working together, Tanner, a rationalist enlightenment feeling, but a romanticism that wants to like follow its feelings, all that stuff together has contributed to total secularization and considering consumer culture. And thus in that culture, there is, this goes all the way back to one of our first podcasts, there's a dislike of mediation, right? right? We want immediacy. That's right. And government and political solutions seem immediate, especially, Hodges, if the problem is just merely material. Right. Right. So there's always this, it's like there's uh, uh, there's always this understructure, this this superstructure, I guess, the word, or substructure, that might be right, the substructure of materialism and consumerism and kind of romantic hedonism and something like that that's underneath everything that bubbles up in some ways when you ask, well, how do we fix the problem? It's like, well, obviously just pat- – because both sides say this. All right? right and left increasingly say this, which is why I think Christians get increasingly frustrated with both sides because they're like, well, the problem is just legislation. Right. Or if we vote in yeah. this president. Yeah, it's not that Or not if we get work. in this Supreme Court justice, just sure. to be a little topical. But somehow that will solve all the problems. It's like, it. you said spiritual renewal. And spiritual renewal is not sexy, Hodges. No. It's just no. not. It's a, and it's and not it feels quick. oppressive. Are you trying to tell me you're going to make a theocracy now? All the biblical laws are going to now be imposed on all the people. What if they don't believe those biblical laws? Well, it's a problem. It's a problem. And it's a spiritual problem that only God can fix. And that's why I think Christians go to their knees and pray for their culture, for their econo- uh, economy, uh, and for the, the hearts and souls of their neighbors. Um, but it, 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 it strikes me that we have the wrong idea about wealth to begin with. Mm-hmm. That is, we, we assume that there is a finite amount of wealth in the, in the world, like a pie, and that pie has to be divided up equally amongst, to be just, has to be divided up equally amongst the people. And the reality is not that way at all. Mm. Wealth, we don't, it's like we don't understand how wealth is made anymore. Right. We think, we think wealth is simply just something that you have, right? You hear people talk about how, um, we just have to have the government pay for education. And you think, well, where's the money coming from? Well, it comes from the government. Well, the government doesn't make any money. They don't know anything about wealth. They don't. They're, not, they're completely dependent on the taxes of of people who do create wealth right. and spend and make and send their taxes into the IRS. Right. Well, so but they don't think that far because they don't really they really have this idea that somehow there's money out there and it ought to be divided equally among people. And I didn't get my fair share, so that's unjust. But in reality, wealth is the. I think of it as, as the, in this way: you take three kernels of of corn, and you and you bury them in the ground, and it grow. They grow into a stalk, and that stalk produces an ear, and that ear has on it a hundred, say, or whatever right. uh, kernels of corn, right? right? So you've gone from three to a hundred. Right. Well, that's a, that's wealth. That's right. wealth. I I have um, I have a stand of trees. Okay, I, they belong to me, and maybe they're worth 
uh, $100 a piece. I'll just make something up. $100 a piece, sure. right? But if I cut them down, some of them, and turn them into a piano, <laughs> right. I can sell that piano for $90,000. Right. Well, I could buy more trees. (laughs) And I could buy loads more trees and I could continue the work. But what I've done is I've, I've made wealth, you see, by, by putting my energies into the, the system. I am somehow investing into this and I'm getting back a dividend. Um, and it's the, it's what we do. It's what human beings do. We, we take, uh, cotton balls and we turn them into clothing or, or curtains and we sell them for a lot more than the cotton balls were worth to begin with. It's the added value of the, of the, uh, yeah. involvement of the human being in the process. And this is, I think it goes all the way back to the pre-fall, uh, uh, creation mandate that God said, I want you to do certain things. I want you to work. I want you to, be fruitful and multiply, have children. I want you to tend and keep the garden. I want you to see it fruit, fruitful and also protect it. I, I think you ought to name the animals. They're jobs yeah. I want you to do, right? And those jobs were inherently worthwhile. Yeah. So they know that he knew that uh, to get uh, food, Adam had to grow things out of the ground to eat. That was what God gave him. But before the fall, those things were easy to do. Right. Now the fall happens, God curses the ground and says it's going to produce thorns and thistles, it's going to be difficult for you to actually make it be fruitful. But still, that's the same process. You still have to be making things to be fruitful. That's where wealth comes from. It's almost like you could argue that wealth and resources are potentially infinite. Right. Right. That, that's that's correct. As long as we are, what's the right word? As long as we go about it correctly and wisely, it's right. potentially infinite. If it, it reminds me when of. When you clear cut a land, you, you, you eliminate some of the potential for that land. Right. Don't when, you? If you just do constant irrigation. Strip mining or something. Yeah. If you do constant, you know, plowing and irrigation without rotation, you get the dust bowl. That's right. right? Exactly right. So it reminds me of when Infinity War came out. Uh, there's a ton of people, the movie that came out earlier this year, there were a ton of people who agreed with Thanos, the bad guy. Mm. Did you ever see the movie? I haven't seen Thanos it. Thanos' whole worldview, he wants to get all the Infinity Stones, which are like these primordial uh, uh, embodied essences of like the powers of creation itself. So it gives you like ultimate God, like capital G, God-like power. Wow. He wants to get all these stones and use it to wipe out half of the existence in the universe. Sure. And his argument is very logical. His argument is the universe is finite. Its resources are finite. We're getting way too many mouths to be sustainable. Oh, my gosh. They're right. All, it's the pragmatism. Right. There always has to be a purging out. So yeah. he goes from world to world. So originally he went from world to world and would like, Randomly, he says, randomly, dispassionately, like young and old, poor and rich, no no favoritism whatsoever. We divide them in half, side half, and we slaughter half of them, and then Good we leave. Night. And he's like, you know, he said, you know what happens when I do that? So within generations, they have clean skies and full bellies because all the resources. And his and there were people who agreed with him. Like mm-hmm. if you're saying there's like a, I don't know, a hashtag Thanos was right, you know, kind of like oh, when, wow. kind of like when Black Panther came out, there was a hashtag Killmonger was right or something like that, but. Yeah. And it, it, people have pointed out his fundamental flaw is that it, the resources and wealth are potentially infinite because people can create. It reminds me back in the 70s when I was not alive, but I've heard of the population <laughs> bomb 
controversy. Oh, yeah. right. The idea that right. you know there people there, were afraid there was overpopulation. Yeah, and that they run out of. They were public intellectuals who argued similar lines that That's maybe right. we need to start thinking about trimming the herd and stuff like that. But then the whole thing didn't happen. Why? Well, because other, amongst other things, other countries and developing countries learned how to produce more wheat. Mm-hmm. And so, right. so suddenly we were able to create even more resources. We can always create it more and more. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of how wealth and resources get created. But even, not but, in addition, even in our very saying of that, we recognize, like I said, it's potentially infinite via wise use. Mm-hmm. So there, right. right there, seems to be like the fundamental, not to oversimplify, but like there's the economic and there's the moral. Right. 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 We have these resources and this wealth and stuff and a potential within it. But unless we have the right, wise way and order of going about using it and cultivating it, it can go wrong in so many different directions, Mm -hmm. including Mm -hmm. like things getting concentrated into fewer and fewer hands, including, you know, uh, know, pollution or exploitation or whatever, all the bad stuff. Right. All that stuff can happen without that wise moral order guiding how we use the resources. Right. Well, let me let me throw out one other aspect of Thanos's mistake then, given what you just said about the movie. The problem of taking half of the population and and destroying them is that you're seeing the population as a whole only as consumers, yes. not as producers. Yes. And so you, you, the, the greatest resource that we've got are human beings, right? Because it's human beings that do the things I was just talking about. It's a human being that takes cotton balls and makes clothing and, and curtains, or, or trees and makes pianos, and so on and so on. So the wealth of nations actually is in the people mm-hmm. and what the people do, and that goes back to the uh, the uh, creation mandate too. Because when God said, "Adam and Eve, I want you to." Uh, tend and keep the garden, and I want you to uh, subdue the earth. He didn't mean destroy the earth. He didn't mean abuse the earth. He meant subdue it, bring it to fruition, bring it to its its greatest potential. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, see, is to have more hands. Yeah. So be fruitful and multiply. Right. <laughs> Go and have kids, see? Right. And the kids actually are going to be continue this process and expand the the the, the human uh, activity throughout the world and bring it all to where it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be these um not abusers of the world as the Greenpeace right. movement would tell us, but and, and understandably because some people have abused the world, okay? Right. We're we're sinners. Uh, but we're supposed to be stewards of the world, caring for it and loving it and bringing it to, to, proper, uh, to its proper end. And so to think that, um, that it would solve a problem by getting rid of half the population it may seem good idea because uh, there's all those mouths to feed, right? Mm-hmm. And you only have so many resources. But the resources actually are the people themselves. And so if you get rid of half the population, what you have is actually less material wealth and not more. Per person. To me, all this, I guess, you know, as a way of wrapping up, which is impossible, because there's all (laughs) kinds of different, all kinds of different ways to go on this, because this is probably just the beginning of the discussion. But as a way to wrap it up, to me, all this stuff, all the studies into it, understanding late Marxism and understanding the late capitalism is trying to critique and understanding all this stuff. To me, it just shows more and more why the Christian view of things is true. Because it just seems, if this is a very Chestertonian move here, right? It just seems like sanity mm-hmm. in the midst of a saying. Mm-hmm. Marxism is at bottom, despite 
the well-intention of Marxists and even the proper concerns they have, Marxism itself is insanity. It's mm-hmm. insane. It's insane. Materialism is an insane way to view the world. You've shut yourself off from an entire realm of reality, and it completely it's left out of all your consideration. Right. right? Late right. capitalism, that thing, whatever, is insane. All right? Consumerist, materialist, get as much as you can, you know, try and get as much... Get as much money as you can, which money, you know, it's, it's not even, it's a piece of paper that's representing something that it's not even real wealth. It's like a paper right. representing real wealth. Right. So it's like, you potential know, it's like, something. It's a potential something. I, so I like, heard a guy say one time, get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can. <laughs> Right, and that's like the that's insane. It's all in, it's all insanity, right? And the forcing people into the dichotomy is insane because it's cutting out. There's all ways that these views shut out reality in right. some way, right. and it feels like when you step into the Christian worldview, which includes things like the Trinity, which includes things like the Fall, when includes things like the notion of creation and what that means, and all all those doctrinal ideas and all the vast implications that come out of them. Mm-hmm. When you step into that realm. It feels like you're stepping out of a super crowded, stuffy house into open air right. for the first time. Like so true. Suddenly, suddenly, so oh, you mean I don't have to be a capitalist or a Marxist? I can be someone who's like, we need a moral order that is protects but also guides our ownership of private property. And there's a way to nuance that out or something. Oh, I can actually critique 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 capitalism in some way and still denounce marxism mm-hmm. you know so like like that sounds like sanity that sounds mm-hmm. like open air and i would love to somehow breathe that sanity out of people like get to their you know get to their house and like knock some of the roofing off or blow a wall open so there's yeah. some fresh air that can get in there here's some right. fresh air okay right. breathe a little bit yeah i agree i think um it would be fun to take this another stage next time we get together sure because there are so many in the church that seem swayed by uh, socialism today mm-hmm. uh, i would love for us to try and figure out how now that we sort of established what socialism and marxism and capitalism are uh maybe what we need to do is find out why it is that so many think that the socialist mindset actually fulfills the call of jesus to care for the poor and look after the world and so on um, that is another topic, but I think it sure. deserves its own uh, its own podcast. I think so. Uh, recommendation? Uh, yeah. What, was, as I was thinking um, of this, I thought about a chapter in Richard Weaver's book, uh, Ideas Have Consequences. Mm-hmm. And we've maybe mentioned that, that book before. It's a fantastic book and needs to be read uh, regularly. But uh, there's an idea that... Uh, in the beginning of the second chapter, called Distinction and Hierarchy, and I recommend you read that chapter because it talks, to begin with, about this notion of the Logos. And it says, his famous line is, that society is a reflection of the Logos. In other words, that the Logos itself actually sets in motion or sets a framework around uh, through people that establishes a society. And if you agree to that logos together, you find that you can actually have a coherent society. Uh, but the rest of the chapter is fascinating, talking about uh, the, the uh, ability of people to distinguish one thing from the other and then to put them in hierarchy so that one thing is more important than another. And without the logos, you can't do that. 
And I think we're, we're suffering that problem now. So if you're interested in going further in that idea that, uh, that, uh, that an atheistic society or a, a, a non-theistic society is no longer able to even make what Weaver would call simple predication, you can't, you can't say this is good or that is bad. Uh, or even this is air and that is water. You know, you, could, you, you can't make distinctions eventually at all. Uh, and it's very much like what you were talking about, how the Marxists uh, seeing through one layer and then in a second layer and a third to a third and to a fourth and like that. And it seems to be an infinite um, um, inability to, to, to stop and say this is good, to make, to make a, a moral uh, um, uh, evaluation of something. Uh, without the Logos, that turns out to be impossible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I'd suggest that second chapter of, of Weaver's book. Okay. My recommendation is an article I just read from First Things, mm-hmm. which sometimes gets, uh, I think recently gets uh, kind of flogged for being a little too socialist friendly. I don't know if they are or not, but I know there was an article. Individual writers, I think, are yeah, it, a little it, more it, socialist. There are individual yeah. writers that are. One who is not, I think he's just very Catholic, and Catholics have their own social tradition, social teaching. Uh, David Hart Bentley? I think David, David Bentley Hart. I always get that flipped around. Right. David Bentley Hart uh, wrote an article called Mammon Ascendant. Mm. And it is a, it's a, it's a little lengthy article, so you know, pack a lunch. But it's, <laughs> it's basically a very good, and you don't have to agree with this. As a matter of fact, some of you may read it and disagree with it, but it's a very good, relatively comprehensive sort of Christian take on capitalism that's a critique, including uh-huh. its history, uh-huh. like where, how, where, how it arose and where it came out of and what it's all about. You may agree with it, you may disagree with it, but here's a way to like, what are people, what, like, what is a Christian, a kind of Christian critique of it that doesn't necessarily have to be Marxist or socialist or otherwise. Right. And right. how, and I, so I would, I, I would check that one out. So it's an article by, uh, from First Things. It's by, it's from David Bentley Hart. It's called uh, Mammon Ascendant. So Good. I would check that out. All right. Very good. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. We thank you guys for joining us. This has been From the Center, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.